Romans 15, starting in verse 8. And Jay, if you get me some water, that'd be great. Romans, 8, 5, Romans 15, starting in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ came, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, of his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning as we look at it, to look at it and understand the hope that is ours in Christ, a hope not only for Jews but for Gentiles, a hope that is found in your fulfilling your promises to the patriarchs, to the fathers of the faith, and Father, that is found in your giving promises which you have fulfilled that extend not only to the Jews but to all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. Father, we pray that as we look at your word, as we understand it, that you would help us understand it even more clearly, that you would help us to love it, that you would help us to rejoice in your word and to live it out in a manner that honors you, to trust in you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christmas season, as you know, can be a time of great joy or a time of great despair, can't it? Depends on what's happening in your life. During Christmas time, what we find is that we often get lost in family time and decorations and presents and Santa Claus and Christmas trees and stockings and Christmas movies and Christmas parties and Christmas foods and Christmas lights. And you guys know it goes on and on and on. And I, I love all these things as long as they point to the real meaning for this whole season. This is the season of the year that we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's the time of year we focus on the only true ground of our hope, Jesus. And sadly, we so often hope in so many other things that we lose sight of our real hope, Jesus. We hope in things like our careers or our jobs or our finances. We find our comfort and our peace in them. We hope in our marriages, our parenting, our reputation, our image with, other, with others, don't we? We hope in our physical and mental health. We hope in our government. And you might say, I don't hope in the government, I'm conservative. You rejoice when a certain party wins, don't you? Because you have some hope in your government. We hope in the stock market, particularly with regard to our retirement. We hope in our homes or our family lives. We even hope in God in the wrong way. We hope in God as the giver of things temporal, not as the giver of things eternal. And what happens when all this is stripped away? 
What happens when your health fails, or you lose a job, or you're publicly humiliated, or you lose your reputation, or the stock market tanks, or the government is on, va- on the verge of bankruptcy, or you lose your home, or your children become rebellious, or a close family member dies, or you get cancer, or your marriage falls apart. All of these things I just mentioned are happening to people in this room right now. What happens when it all falls apart? When those things occur, Christmas can become one of the hardest times of the year, especially if your hope is in those things. However, the Christmas season is to be a time where our true hope, where we're reminded where our true hope lies. Jesus told the story of two men. One man built his house on sand. That's building his house on his own ability to get life done and trusting in this world and this worldly things. Another man built his house on the rock. That's building his house or his life on Christ, on trusting in the Lord. And when the storm of life came, Jesus says, that the man who built his house on what he could accomplish and trust in this world, who built his life on that, his house got washed away. His life was destroyed. His hope was gone. It was a wreck. But the man who built his house on the rock, on Christ, on trust in the Lord, was sustained. And this Christmas season really should be seen by us as an opportunity to make sure that our houses are built on the rock to make sure that our hope is built firmly on Jesus. It's precisely this hope that is ours in Christ that Paul's been pointing to in this section of Romans 15. See, beginning in Romans 14 and on through Romans 15, at least verse 13 of chapter 15, Paul has been making a sustained argument for unity in the church. He's been saying that we need to love one another. We need to overlook indifferent matters and not judge each other and not cause one another to stumble, but we need to pursue unity. And the section of Scripture we're reading is actually part of that argument. And he's pointing to the gospel as our hope in this section because what he's saying is that we will never have the love, the self-sacrificing, putting our desires aside kind of love for the sake of the unity of, of the body of Christ, if we do not have hope in Christ, we won't have that kind of love if we don't have some future hope that we're looking to. Because we won't endure in that kind of love. So he's saying you should love one another, and hope will provide the endurance to that end. Because see, if your self-sacrifice for the benefit of others culminates in nothing... If there is no hope after this life, then you're self-sacrificing. Your love is worthless at this point. Which is why Paul says, if Christ is not raised, in 1 Corinthians 15, if he's not raised, then eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection are only hope. Without him, we have no hope. With him, we have full assurance of future glory. But since I talked about how hope informs our love last week, what I want to do today is point out how this Christmas season, okay, I'm tying it into this Christmas season, how this Christmas season can be rallied to build your hope. How it can be a time for you to proclaim the hope of Christ to others. 
And so I'm going to give you three reminders. You ready? That I think Paul provides. Three reminders during this Christmas season that can be used to build your hope in Christ. Three reminders. Here's the first one. One, this Christmas season, you need to be constantly reminded that God is faithful to all his promises. Hear that? Be constantly reminded that God is faithful to all his promises. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. <clears throat> Hear that? Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness, confirming every promise given to our Jewish fathers in the faith. So Paul's saying, so that God's promise to Abraham and to David would be shown true. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 5, when he's talking to Jews, you search the scriptures because you know that in them you have life. But it's they that talk about me. <clears throat> Let me briefly show you the unfolding promise of God and how it's met in Jesus. Keep your hands there in Romans 15. Look back to Genesis chapter 3. Here's the Bible story. God created us to be in a perfect relationship with him and we sinned, and we walked away from him, and the, we were cursed. We were cursed to death, to eternal hell, physical death and spiritual death. But God, in the midst of cursing us, also cursed the serpent. And in the curse to the serpent, to Satan, who led us astray, in the curse to him, God gives us his promise. It's promised the hope. He says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel promise in the Bible. Scholars often refer to it as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. This is where God comes to Satan and says, I will, through the seed of the woman, crush you. But in doing it, the seed of the woman will also be struck. It's the first promise of the coming Christ who will die on the cross in order to conquer Satan and sin and death. It's given there and it's given to all mankind because Adam is the father of all men, all women, all children, is given to all of us through him. It goes forward as Genesis progresses to Genesis 12, where he's given this promise to all mankind, and then in Genesis 12, he comes to one of those men, Abraham. His name is Abram, here, <clears throat> when God first comes to him. Abram means exalted father. And he comes to Abram, and he makes the promise to him. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, if you look there. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham's seed would come the blessing of all the families of the earth. But what God has come to Abram and said is this. Abram, who is, by the way, the first Jew. <clears throat> Abram, it is you I'll set aside. Through your seed will come a great nation. And through that nation, through that seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he's narrowed the promise from it's to all mankind. It's coming through a son of Adam, through a son of Eve, that Messiah who will crush Satan. Now that Messiah who will crush Satan is coming through the nation of Israel, through the nation that comes from Abraham. So it's been narrowed a bit. And then in Genesis 49, we get an increasing narrowing of that promise. If you look at Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob, who was a grandson of Abraham, as Jacob blesses his sons, in Genesis 49 verse 10, he says this, as he just blesses Judah, Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. He says this to one of the sons, Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, it is through Judah's tribe that this messianic king shall come. Not only is it coming through the seed of the woman, the seed of the man, and the nation of Abraham, but it's coming from the tribe of Judah. This messianic king is coming from the tribe of Judah. It narrows even more. Go to 2 Samuel. If you're not very familiar with your Bibles, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you jump into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then you have First and Second Samuel. So go to 2 Samuel and chapter 7. The promise narrows even further. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 12, this is what we learn. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, the king. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him to a father and he shall be to me a son that this is where we get the promise that not only will he come from the, son, the seed of the man and the woman, from that all mankind, but from the nation of Abraham or the Jews, Israel, and from the tribe of Judah, but now specifically from the house of David. That promise is coming. From the house of David. Now look at the fulfillment of this. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. That's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, and you see this picked up here at the beginning of Matthew 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You hear what he's pointing back to? He's the promise one. Notice what he does with this genealogy, though. Abraham was the father of Isaac. He starts with Abraham. He goes down to, if you look at verse 6, all the way to David. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon 
by the wife of Uriah, and then he goes through this to the deportation of Babylon, and then from the deportation of Babylon all the way to verse 16 where Christ is born, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. But what he does here, which is interesting that Matthew does, is he sums this whole genealogy up in verse 17, and look at it. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I'm not going out on a limb when I say this, so you know. One of the literary devices that was often used by Hebrew writers is a thing called gematria. Gematria is the idea when, I say, when, when you take every letter is corresponding to a number. And you say, the number of his name was, you guys heard that with the Antichrist and in the book of Revelation, right? The number of the name of the beast shall be 666. That's gematria. Each of those numbers corresponds to a letter. In this case, you have 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Why the emphasis on that? Because the consonants of the name David add up to 14. And what he's doing is he's grounding this all in the Davidic promise. David is the center of this genealogy because Christ is the one, it comes from David, from the house of David. He is the messianic king promised to David. From Adam and Eve all the way down to David, and now it's fulfilled in Jesus, where he's born in the town of David. And he's of the seed or the family of David. Look further at Romans chapter 1, lest you think I'm taking a stretch here. Look at Romans chapter 1. Since we're in Romans 15, go to Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 2, or actually just start in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand in his Scriptures, right? In his holy scriptures, through his prophets. Concerning, verse 3, concerning his son. In other words, Paul is an apostle, a servant, set apart for the gospel of God. And what's the gospel? It's something that was <clears throat> promised beforehand by the prophets in the holy scriptures, the Old Testament. And what is that gospel about? It's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Both God and man, humiliated and exalted from the family of David and also a son of God. <clears throat> Look at Galatians chapter 4. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Romans, and then 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, chapter 4. To finish this point, you'll notice what's said there in verse 4 of chapter 4. Paul, before this, is talking about the fact that we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, and then he says, but, verse 4, but when the fullness of of time had come. What does that mean, the fullness of time? When that prophetic season, that prophetic time in which God had promised, the fullness of time had come. When that day came that has been promised since Genesis 3.15 forward, when that day arrived, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, that's Mary, born under the law, that means he's a Jew, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Here's Paul's point. We celebrate our hope in Christ because he's fulfillment of all of God's promises. That gives us hope because what he's done in the past, he will continue to do. If he's fulfilled all his promises in the Old Testament, we can have certainty he will continue to fulfill all his promises. This is what we celebrate every, com- every Christmas, the coming of the fullness of time, the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, the yes to all God's promises. And we should remember this Christmas to take time to read Christmas passages about the, about, or read passages of Scripture that are about the coming of Christ, what we call those typical Christmas passages, so that we can remember, we can remember that God kept all his promises and in that have hope. That's why we put Advent devotions on the website for you to look up. Encourage you to go pull them off. There's bakersfieldchurch.org under the resources tab. It's an Advent. It's very simple, very easy to follow. Just go through there. Reflect on what Scripture says, both in the promises and the fulfillments. He is the consolation of Israel and the hope of the world. Faithfulness to past promises is your hope. It's your certainty that God will be faithful to future promises. Two, second thing you need to be reminded of. This Christmas season, you need to be constantly reminded that God is merciful to all peoples in Christ. Constantly reminded that God is merciful to all peoples in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 15. Again, in verse 9, he tells why Christ became a servant. And in verse 9 he says, and the second reason Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles, that's all the people who aren't Jews, that's all the ethnes, the ethnic groups, the nations, not marked by what we typically see when we look at our map and we think of nation states, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about every ethnic group, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In order that Christ came not only to show God's faithfulness to his promises, but in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on with a series of Old Testament promises to show what's actually what's been intended all along. Jesus came for the nations, not just for Israel. The original promise was for him to be the savior of all mankind, for every tribe and tongue and nation. Salvation of the Gentiles or the nations wasn't plan B. I hear a lot of people seem to think that when what happened is Jesus came for the Jews to be their Messiah, and when they rejected him, he then went to plan B to all the other nations. It was never plan B. His plan was always to save the elect of Israel and the elect of every other nation. His plan was always to gather his people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth. Always that was his plan. Always that was his promise. Genesis 3.15 was a promise for all mankind. Genesis 12 tells us that he's going to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. In fact, not only that, God changes Abram's name, exalted father, to Abraham. Do you know what Abraham means? 
father of many nations. And all who believe in Christ are children of Abraham. Paul uses four quotes from the Old Testament to back this up. What's interesting about these Old Testament quotes is that Paul selects them from the three main sections of Scripture. The Old Testament, for the Hebrews, is sort of divided up basically into three sections the way they look at it. They have the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law would be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The writings would be things like the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, etc. The prophecies would be pretty much most of everything else. What he does is he quotes from three main sections. Look what he does in verse 9. Therefore, I will pray, as it is written, he's going to glorify God for his mercy to the Gentiles, as it is written, it's been promised all along. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is a quotation from Psalm 1849, a quotation from the writings. Look down at verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. A quotation from Psalm 117.1. Again, a quotation from the writings. Look at verse verse 10. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's actually a quotation from the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.43, a quotation from the law. And then if you look at verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, Isaiah being a prophet, this is specifically Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. You see, in every single case, what Paul is saying is throughout the Old Testament, it has been written, it's been promised. It goes through every section of the Scriptures that Jesus is not just coming from the Jews. It's always been promised that Jesus is coming for Gentiles as well. And that's Paul's point. Throughout the Old Testament Scripture, the promise is the Messiah will come to save the lost from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's the hope of all mankind. He is our hope and that he's the one who brings us mercy. Why do we need mercy? What does the need for mercy assume about us? You see, I think a lot of times we look at the cross and we say, well, the cross, what it really does is shows us how loving God is. Yes, that's true. It's absolutely true. But what else does the cross tell us about us? Is it just that God wanted to go out and do an exercise of love by slaughtering his son? That's a pretty perverse way to show love if it is unnecessary. So what's necessary about the cross because of our condition that God would show us love in that particular way? What's necessary about the cross because of our condition is this. We are sinners. We are people who've walked away from God. He is a holy God. We deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. So Jesus went to the cross to pay our penalty for our sin. He was sinless, holy, blameless, undefiled. But he obeyed the law in our place, lived perfectly the lives we failed to, went to the cross, and paid the penalty due to us. So in the cross, you see both the most horrific picture of what your sin looks like to God, and at the same time, the most incredible picture of how loving God is. That's what the cross is about. 
We need mercy. See, people think that they can be saved through some other means, that they can access God apart from Jesus, apart from him paying the penalty for their sin. You cannot. You're a sinner. You've been separated from a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how you're saved. You can't add anything to it either, by the way. Jesus, let me see. I said this last week. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Hear that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not Jesus plus my good works. Jesus plus my faith, i.e. all the kind of virtuous faith I can generate. Jesus plus nothing is everything. I look to him. God isn't rewarding me for the virtue of my faith. He isn't rewarding me for the virtue of a life well lived. He's rewarding me only, only because I look to Jesus and because Jesus is virtuous, because Jesus is good, because Jesus paid the penalty. It's all faith is. It's looking to Jesus. It isn't something you're generating in your heart by like, look how good, how much faith I've built up. It's just looking to Jesus. It's recognizing there's nothing virtuous in you, that you contribute nothing to the equation, that Jesus is your only hope. Faith really and repentance really is, I've come to the end of me. I recognize that on my own, I have no hope. I recognize that even with God's assistance, I have no hope. I recognize that my only hope is Jesus, that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. That he is my righteousness, he is my hope, he is the one in whom I trust. That nothing I do in this life can detract from my righteousness and nothing I do in this life can add to my righteousness because my righteousness sits at the right hand of God and he is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's my hope. He's come to fulfill all God's promises for all peoples. He is our merciful Savior, our cause for joy, our peace with God, our eternally glorious King, our hope. And this season should drive us to remember the reason he came. But not only that, to proclaim that hope to others. Paul understands that this glorious good news must be told to all peoples, which is why he says in Romans 1.5, what? I've received the grace of apostleship through Christ. I've received that through Christ. So why? So that I can bring about the obedience of faith in all peoples for the sake of his name. That's why he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, and thus I make it my my ambition to preach the gospel, the good news, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The whole letter to the church at Rome is Paul saying to them, I want to lay out this glorious good news that I want to go to Spain to tell the people who've never heard about him. I want to go tell them this news, and I'm going to come see you. When I come see you, I want you to help me financially on my way to Spain so that I can tell this news to people who've never heard it. That's what Christianity is all about, Paul says. It's all about this gospel message. Jesus Christ, our hope, our Savior, our King, our righteousness. It's about him, and we need to tell everyone about him. That's why we're doing two things over this Christmas season. 
That's why we have these invitation packets for the Christmas Eve service. Sure, you could invite unbelievers and people disconnected from the church without these packets. We just give these tools to you to help you out. I think a lot of Christians carry around a lot of guilt because they don't really know how to do evangelism. They know they should, they even want to, but they keep forgetting about it because our minds are so hopelessly caught up with other things. And they feel guilty because they don't exactly know what to do. And so we're trying to help you start breaking that ice. That's why we have these packets. To help you start getting used to, to start breaking the ice and sharing your faith. The other thing we're doing this Christmas time, this season, in light of what Paul says here about getting the gospel to others, is next week, one of my friends, a missionary that our church supports, Brooks Buzer, will, is going to come here and preach in Romans 15 about making it his ambition to preach the gospel, to name Christ where he's never been named. Brooks Buzer um, has lived several years among the Yembe Yembe people. He actually grew up in a home where his dad took them to the Yeteti people in Papua New Guinea, where he actually grew up among cannibals. And his dad preached the gospel to them, planted a church there, translated the Bible for them, and then pulled out and left because they had a fully functioning church still going there. When Brooks grew up, he said, I want to go back to another people group and preach the gospel. So he went to the Yembe Yembe, another people group who have never heard of Jesus. And he's lived among them for, very, for, for multiple years. He's going to come here and tell us about the work he's been doing there and why that's grounded in, in, in this Advent season, this remembering who Christ is and what he's done and the need to tell all the nations about him. The next week, Jake Knotts, a pastor, church planner, who I actually assessed through the Acts 29 network, he'll be here next week, the week after that. He's going to come here and preach again on the gospel and his work in the Ukraine, where when he was 18 years old, he left here, flew to the Ukraine, learned the language, and now is planting his second church in the Ukraine. He's only in his mid-20s. Late 20s, I think, actually. But he's going to come preach about that. Why? Because Jesus is our hope. And the Christmas season isn't a time for us to become intensely selfish. The Christmas season is a time for us to be intensely focused on Jesus and the need of the world to hear about him. He's our hope. He's their hope too. They need to know that he's their hope, that he's their only hope. Third major reminder, this Christmas season, be constantly reminded that God is himself the God of hope and trust he will provide you with increasing hope. Be constantly reminded that God is himself the God of hope and trust that he will provide you with increasing hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How do you grow in hope in Christ? You look to the word and pray and you trust that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will build up hope in you. That's how you do it. You look to, it's, very, it's very simple, not very easy to do. Very simple, though. It isn't some complicated, complex formula. Very simple. Look to the word of promise that God, by his Holy Spirit, has given us. Look to it. Meditate on it. Know it, read it, study it, sit under the preaching of it, hear it, speak it to one another, and pray, pray, pray. Ask the Lord to build you up. It's that simple, very, very hard 
to do because your flesh, the world, and the devil will do everything to work against that. Everything. But that's what you do. That's how you grow in hope. And the God of hope will build up your hope through the power of his Holy Spirit. But some of you, and I I don't want to forget about this, some of you are suffering during this time, aren't you? I know I was suffering. My family was suffering intensely during last Christmas season. And I know what it's like when you're trying to hold on to Christ as your hope in the midst of that kind of suffering. When I'm suffering, I don't know about you, those of you who are currently suffering, but when I was in this period of suffering, I didn't want to employ the resources that God has given me to increase my hope. When I was in the midst of suffering, I didn't want to crack open my Bible and read it every day. I could hardly concentrate on what the Word said. I didn't want to pray because I could hardly think about anything else. I didn't want to go out amongst other believers and have them speak the word into my life and come to church and have the word preached to me because I could hardly stand wanting to be around other people and answering questions about how is it going. In the midst of that kind of suffering, you often don't want to read the Bible, you don't want to pray, you don't want to go to church, you don't want to be around other believers. But you must. I want you to hear this. You must. You must flee to Christ and his word and not away from him. You must flee to the gift he's given you in the body of Christ and not away from them. You must. You must seek help from other believers. You have to have your gaze turned away from your circumstances and to your hope in Christ. You must. That's why in Lamentations, the author is talking about the difficult suffering he's going through. In Lamentations chapter 3, he's talking about how his teeth are grinding on the gravel. He's cowering in ashes. His soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say to my endurance, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Hear that? This guy can't focus. It feels like his teeth are just being grinded to gravel. His soul is bereft of peace. He's forgotten what happiness even is. His hope from the Lord has perished. You ever been there? You there right now? What does he say happens? My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but I call this to mind. Here's what I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind and has hope? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You hear that? I am overcome with grief and suffering and sorrow to the point where I cannot even remember happiness. I can't even remember having any hope from the Lord. It's gone. But I remember this. 
I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. I call to mind what? The gospel. The good news that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning, and great is his faithfulness, and he is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Why? Because Jesus is your king, and he's seated on your throne because he raised from the dead. That's why he's seated there, and he will never, ever cease being your merciful king. And you have to call that to mind in the midst of suffering. It's the only way you'll get through it with your hope intact. That's it. That's where preparation during the good times begins. If you're in the middle of good times right now, you know, you've got plenty going on, not want. If you're in the midst of that, you've got to prepare for the day that suffering's coming because it will come. And you need to prepare. Don't take this time of good times for granted. Prepare. Look to the word. Pray. Sit under preaching. Be with other believers. Prepare yourself for the time of suffering so that your hope is in the Lord. We must learn to trust in Christ and God's faithfulness to all his promises. I want to finish with this hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth for the promise that you have made in the gospel, for the hope that is ours in Christ alone. We pray that we would look to him, that we would take this Christmas season to be reminded continually of our hope in Christ in the gospel. Father, our hope would be bolstered throughout this time as we reflect on your word together. Father, that we would not only desire to be built up in hope ourselves, but we would desire to see the hope of your son proclaimed to a lost and dying world. We pray this for your son's glorious name. Amen.